Well, good morning. What a joy to be able to be with you today on this great rainy day. I don't know about you, but uh, this past year there has been some thoughts about God that uh, during good times you have a thought and you think, oh yeah, it makes sense. But then there are difficulties you start to wonder, wow, does that make sense anymore? Have you ever read a scripture like that, that during good times you read it and say, yep, that's the truth. And then during difficult times you read it again and say, wait, what, is that really true? Have you ever had one of those experiences? I read this verse recently and I had one of those experiences. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know, everybody say we know it. I mean, not just think it, not just believe it. We know it. We know that all things, say that with me, all things. We know that all things, God works for the good. Now, that's, uh, that's easy to say when things are easy. That's easy to say when the job's going well, kids are doing well, everybody's healthy, we've got the money to pay the bills, but during other times, sometimes we look and say, hey, didn't you see what's happening in Afghanistan today? Didn't you see what just happened in Haiti? Some of you have lost jobs during the past year and a half. You've had people die, people going through difficulties. And sometimes in times of difficulty, we start to look at these kinds of words and say, wow, is it really true? Now, how many of you would be honest and say, yeah, that happens sometimes? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes during a pandemic and, and during challenges when you've been laid off from your job and, and things aren't going well, we start to wonder, is it really true? Can I really say I know that all things God works for the good to those who love him, to those that are called according to his purpose? Now, if we're going to understand this, I think firstly we need to backtrack and understand this, that God himself is good. Amen? God is good. In the beginning, this phrase is used over and over. And God created the heavens and the earth, and he looked on it, and he saw that it was he saw it was good. He, he created the oceans and the stars and the moon and the sun, and he saw that it was he created all of the trees and all of the vegetation, and he saw that it was? He created all the birds and all the fish, and he saw that it was? He created all the animals, and he saw that it was? And then God created man in his own image. And, and listen to this. The only thing in the early recording history that it said it wasn't good. What was the one thing that's not good that God did? It is not good that man would be alone. Now, I want you to remember this. God doesn't do something and then come to a conclusion or come to knowledge. So it's not that God made man alone and say, oh, wait, I made a mistake. It's that God created man, sent him around to name all the animals so that at the end of the day, the man could come back and say, wait, none of these things fill the void. 
None of these things meet the need of my life. There's something missing in my life. And then God can say, that's right, there's something missing. Now let me show you what you need. You need relationship. You need community. You need fellowship. It is never good for people to be alone. And if there's anything that this pandemic has taught us, it is not good for people to be alone. Can anybody say amen? We have learned through this that we need each other. We used to sing a song uh, when I was uh, first in the Lord, and uh, it was mentioned I've been a missionary all my life, but I was an alcoholic till I was 20, so I've not been a missionary all my life. <laughs> but since I was 20, I started following the Lord, and then quickly I went into missions. But I can tell you this, we used to sing this song, it's called He's All I Need. How many of you are uh, mature enough, I'm not going to say old enough, how many of you are mature enough to remember that song, He's All I Need? And how many of you know that song's just not true? Jesus is not all you need. Jesus made you in such a way that you need me and I need you. Jesus made you in such a way that you can say he's all I need, but try to go without eating and what's going to happen? You're going to die because you need food and you need Jesus. You need air and you need Jesus. You need water and you need Jesus. You need Jesus and you need fellowship. You need other people in your life. And that's how God made you. God made you for a relationship with him and relationship with one another. That's how we were created. We were created for relationship. And that's the good thing that God has done. And so I want you to see this. Then we see this picture of man and woman in the garden with God and everything's perfect. The Bible says literally they were naked and unashamed. That means they were not hiding anything from one another, not hiding anything from open God. Their lives were an open book. There was no shame. There was nothing to hide. It was just we are totally transparent with one another. I'm just totally open with my thoughts. I'm totally open with my life that there is perfect relationship between the man and the woman and the man and the woman with God, which is what is good that God made us for. And then along comes the enemy, and here's the first lie. Do you really need God? I mean, why are you worshiping him? You can do it on your own. You can be a God to yourself. Why are you following his rules? Why are you doing it his way? You can do it without him. You really don't need God. All you need is yourself. Be a God to yourself. Just serve and do it your way. You really don't need God. He's really trying to keep good things from you. He really just wants to rule over you and keep you from the best of things. And if you'll do it your own way, you'll actually have a better life. Does that sound like something we hear? Have it your way. Do it your way. Think of yourself. Make your own rules. Make your own path. Be true to yourself. Isn't that what the world's telling us today? And if you'll do that, you'll have so much more joy, so much more peace, so much more life. And so the man and the woman, they did this. They followed their own path. And what it leads to, it led to the first result of sin was not death. The first result of sin was separation that leads to death. Because when you are separated from God, it always leads to death. So it led to a breakdown of relationship. Now, they are hiding from God. And know this, because God is love, God is freedom. Because God loves us, God gives us freedom. Right? There's no real love without freedom. I can't love a robot. A robot cannot love me. 
For there, in order to be loved, there has to be freedom of choice. And God, because he loves us, he, he put this dangerous DNA in us. He gave us the freedom of choice. That we're not like animals that just act on instinct. We are a people created in the image of God who have the ability to make choices. And God doesn't override the choice. So notice this, God putting man out of the garden. Why did he put him out of the garden? Because they were hiding from him. They wanted to be separate from him, right? You remember God comes down in the garden and he says, where are you? And again, God's not asking questions because he needs answers. God's asking questions so we reveal our heart. Where are you? And they, they're hiding from God. So God gives them what they want. Okay, you don't want to be with me anymore. I'm not going to force you. I love you enough not to force you to be with me, and he puts them out of the garden so they can have their way, so they can be separate from him. And notice with this, when you're not in right relationship with God, you cannot be in right relationship with one another. When your relationship with God breaks down, every relationship in your life is going to break down. So immediately, here are the man and the woman. They are outside of the presence of God. They're living by their own rules. They're raising their family. And now all of a sudden, Cain and Abel, the first sons, they get into a fight. And Cain kills his brother Abel. And God comes along and he asks a question. And again, remember, God's not asking questions because he needs answers. And he asks the question of Cain, where is your brother? And how many of you remember the answer of Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? You see, this is sin. This is sin. Why are you asking me about Abel? My name's Cain. I'm responsible for me. Why are you asking me about him? You see, sin leads to a breakdown of relationship where we don't feel responsible for one another. Why are you asking me about Afghanistan? I'm an American. Why are you asking me about those people? They're not my family. They're not my responsibility. I just got to take care of me, my family, my stuff. If bad stuff is happening to others, that's on them. I just got to take care of me. And let me tell you, that's sin. And let me show you what sin leads to. Brother kills brother. Family fights family. City fights against city. Nation fights against nation. People fight against people. And this is the history. The story of the Bible is the history of people who are not in right relationship with God. And when you're not in right relationship with God, you can't be in right relationship with others. The other family, the other city, the other nation, the other people. I'm not in right relationship with God, so my responsibility for those around me starts to break down. And then along comes Jesus. Can somebody say amen? <laughs> and Jesus comes along, and it tells us that as Jesus is dying, not only for us but for the world, that it says literally the first thing that happens is the veil of the temple. Remember, the veil was in the temple to, as a sign to represent our separation from God, that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple is torn from the top to the bottom, that now Jesus is saying your relationship with God, you have the ability to walk back into the garden, to walk back into the presence of God, to be in his presence, to be right with God, and now we are back in right relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. 
Man, that's, that's good news. That's glad tidings. <laughs> Praise the Lord for the good news that Jesus has made a way. But notice this, that when we return into right relationship with God, it affects all the relationships of our life. I want you to notice Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 that when the early church was filled with the Spirit, now God has come back. He is in right relationship with them. The Spirit of God is living within them. We love to focus on the part of Acts 2.42 that, that they were together and they prayed together. They worshiped together. They read the Bible together. They broke bread together. But I want you to see the focus of Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 43 was this, that everyone who had sold what they had and gave to everyone so there was not one needy person among them. Wow. Acts chapter 4 says literally there was no one at need among them because the grace of God was so powerfully at work in them that everyone that had sold what they had and gave so there was not one needy person among them. You know what happened to the early church? They came back to this realization. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Everyone created in the image of my father. I'm responsible. What's happening in Afghanistan is not some distant war and some distant people who are suffering. They are my brothers and sisters and I'm responsible. What's happening in Haiti is not something that's happening to the other that I can say, oh, that's too bad, and I'm just going to wipe away. I have to realize I am my brother's keeper. I got saved in Georgia. And in the South, well, you know, like as soon as you come to church, everybody is brother and sister. Brother Bob, Sister Susie. I mean, anybody that's a day older than you, they're brother and sister. And it's kind of just a term of respect and endearment we do in the South. We say, yes, ma'am. We say, yes, her. And once you're in church, we say brother and sister. So everybody's brother, Bob, brother, sister, you know, all of this. And for us, it's just kind of terms of endearment. But for the early church, brother and sister denoted relationship. Whatever I owe my brother, you're now my brother, and I now owe it to you. Whatever I owe my sister, you're now my sister, and I now owe it to you. I'm responsible for you. And you're responsible for me. When I was living in uh, Laos. Laos is a closed communist country. And, uh, and you can't just go out and just preach. And you can't go out and do the things you do in a lot of countries. And so I had a neighbor who was really sick. And I, and I wanted to help him. But I knew, I, you know, I, I, we can't do a Christian hospital. We can't have a clinic. We can't do those things. And I also don't like to rob people of dignity. I believe we should always do compassion in such a way that people retain their dignity before God and before man. And so, so one day I noticed he's sick, and I didn't want to go to him and say, hey, I know you're poor and you can't afford it, so let me take you to the hospital. So my son was sick. So I go to his house, and his name was Mr. Oat. I said, Mr. Oat, I need your help. I said, my son's sick. He needs to go to the hospital. Uh, I don't really know how to navigate the hospital here. You know how to do it. Would you please go with me and help me to get my son an appointment? I mean, he just perked up. He only had two shirts. He put his good shirt on, and he gets in the truck with me. We go to the hospital, and if you know anything about Asia, if you have gray hair, you just run the place. So he just walked in the hospital and said, hey, my neighbor's here. His son is sick. Get over here and take care of my neighbor. And he's running people around and brings a doctor in. You know, I, don't, I think the doctor was in surgery. He came in with 
mask and everything, brings him in the room, hey, check out my neighbor, he's, he's sick, and so he gets everybody checked out, and finally at the end, you know, the doctor sits there and he gives medicine to my son, and, and it's great, and I, I thank my neighbor, I said, Mr. O, thank you so much for helping, I could have never done this without you, and I said, hey, and as long as we're here, you have blessed my family, can I return a blessing on your life? I said, why don't we, as long as we're here, I've noticed you've not been, why don't you just get checked up, let me do that for you, because you've blessed my family, and he said, okay, so they do tests, and they take some blood work. A couple of days later, we come back, and we're sitting in the hospital, and uh, the doctor looks at the reports, and he looks at him and shakes his head. He looks at the reports again, and he looks up at me and says, nothing I can do. Take him home and let him die. And I was just like, just like, it took my breath away. I said, what? What do you mean take him home and let him die? I said, you're telling me there's nothing you can do for him? And he said, listen, look at this man. He's poor. He has no money. Our hospital has no facilities. The tests show that his kidneys are failing. And uh, without proper care, he's going to be dead in a few months. And he has no money. We have no facilities here. There's absolutely no reason for me to give him hope. It's better for him to go and die at home at peace with his family. And I'm just kind of shaking. I said, you're telling me there's absolutely nothing that can be done for him. He said, other stuff can be done. He just doesn't have the money to do it, and we don't have the facilities. I said, well, where can it be done? He said, well, you got to drive to Thailand. The closest hospital you can do is about 12 hours away. He'd have to drive there. He doesn't even have a car. He has no money. There's no reason to give false hope. I said, how much money are we talking about? And he gave me a figure. The starting price was like $20,000. I'm like, oh, $20,000. I don't have $20,000. And so I guess I am just going to have to take him home and let him die. And so we drive to the house and I get there. And by this time, I'm just in tears. And we, we, part, we lived on this little dirt lane and he lived in a little thatch uh, hut on this side of the road. And I lived on the other side of the road. And we get to our little lane and I stop in front of his house. And I said, Mr. Ode, I'm so sorry. I, I wish I could do something. And I said, but I tell you what. I want you to know, you know I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is a healer, and I'm going to be praying from this day. I'm going to pray that Jesus heals you. Jesus is a healer. So every night before I go to bed, I'm going to pray. He said, thank you. So that night I go in there. I'm sitting in my, my bed. I'm reading a book, and next thing I know, I fell asleep. And, and then I, I woke up, and I remember, oh, I promised my neighbor I was going to pray. I got to pray. And so, so I put my book down. I get out of my bed, and I kneel beside my bed. I thought, this is serious. This isn't a lay down in bed prayer. This is serious. So I kneel beside my bed, and I said, Jesus, I don't know how you're going to do it, but, but please, would you heal my neighbor? And I heard the still, small voice of the Spirit speak to me. Say, what would you do if he was your father? What would you do? And I started thinking, I thought, if there's any chance that he'd live, I wouldn't just let my father die. I mean, if I had to sell my car, if I had to take out a loan, if I had to mortgage my house, if I had to borrow money, whatever, whatever is necessary, I'd do whatever I had to do because I couldn't live with myself if I just let my father die. And I felt the Spirit speak to me and say, whatever you do for your father, do it for him. So the next day, I get up, and I go back to his house, and I said, Mr. Oat, I didn't treat you right yesterday. I said, I'm supposed to treat you like family, and I didn't treat you like family. I, I treated you like a stranger. Because if my family was in this position, I wouldn't let them die, and I can't let you die. I said, so get ready. This week, we're going to Thailand. 
So that started the process. We went to Thailand, took about a week. He got on dialysis, started all these things. We came back, and then for the next uh, years, once a month, we were back and forth to the hospital, and he's getting dialysis and going through treatments and all. We'd go spend about a week, and we'd come back, and uh, I maxed all my credit cards out. I borrowed all the money I could borrow and went into debt. And, uh, but uh, long story short, it's been uh, over 10 years now, and he's still alive today. But beyond that, two years after we started this process, I felt the Lord calling us back to India. So I went to him and I introduced him to one of my friends there in Laos. And I said, hey, this is my friend. He's going to take over for me. We're not abandoning you. I'm going to still pay for it. Uh, we're going to make sure you're taken care of. And so I, I introduced him and got everything done. And the next day, I'm getting my truck to go to the airport. And as I'm getting in the truck to leave Laos, a young boy from the village comes and grabs me and says, Mr. Oates said he wants to see you one more time before you leave. So I go to his house, and Mr. Ode is a very staunch Buddhist. He was one of the elders in the Buddhist temple that was right next to our house. And I walk in his house, and he looks at me, and he said, I want you to know you're my son, your family. And as my son, your God is going to be my God. Would you tell me how I can follow Jesus? And his wife stepped around the corner from the kitchen, and she said, you're my son too. And I want to follow Jesus too. And that family today has a church in their house. Dozens of people have come to faith because of a simple idea of treating the world like family. Doing unto others as you would do for yourself. Most of you would say, well, that sounds, that sounds awesome, but you can't do that for everybody. My retort to you is start with somebody. Start with somebody. Start looking around you in your community and say, who in my community is in need that I can do something about it? Start with somebody. Start with looking out on the TV and seeing Haiti and not just having a little, little cry for a second, moving on, but say, what am I going to do about my brothers and sisters who are suffering? What am I going to do about Afghanistan? What am I going to do about Somalia? What am I going to do about Sudan? What am I going to do about India? What am I going to do about the needs around me? Am I going to be my brother's keeper? And you see, all of this comes down to one thing. Back to where we started. We know that all things, God works for the good. So why doesn't it look good? As long as good is your good, it's going to be hard to find. As long as the good you're looking for is your house, your car, your bank account, your life, your health, your wealth, good can be hard to find. Because God's greatest good is not your personal good, it is the good of the kingdom. And the good of the kingdom doesn't always benefit your life. And that's why good's kind of hard to find sometimes. Because in the middle of difficulties, I'm, I'm finding personal loss, but my personal loss is leading to kingdom gain. So at the end of the day, I can say, I know that all things, God works for the good. All things, God works for the good. There's a man in the Bible, his name was Joseph. Man, his story illustrates it so good. Here's Joseph, and uh, he's on his way on the fast track to, uh, to uh, uh, being a great guy. 
And then all of a sudden, one day, he goes out to meet his brothers. He's got, he's got 10 brothers at that time, and he goes out to meet his 10 brothers, and they decide, hey, this guy's thinking he's so great. Let's beat him, and let's throw him into the well, and then maybe we'll kill him. Then they decide, eh, why kill him? Let's make some money off of him. So they sell him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt, sold into slavery. In Egypt, he's doing well. He's living, working hard. He's actually elevating even though he's a slave. But then one day, his master's wife tries to have a relationship with him. He refuses and she lies and says he's trying to molest her and now Joseph is thrown in prison. While Joseph in prison, again, even in prison, God's grace was on him and he's elevating in prison. But even there in prison, there's two guys that come that were servants of the king. Now, they're thrown into prison. They have dreams. And notice the audacity of Joseph. Even in prison, after all of this, they come to him and said, I want you to know my God interprets dreams. That's a lot of confidence for a man who's been through all that. That's a lot of confidence for somebody who's been through that much. And he's able to interpret the dreams for them. And then after interpreting the dreams, all he asks is, hey, when you get back to the king, don't forget me. And what do they do? They forget him. And let me tell you, that's the worst thing of all, to feel forgotten. Nobody remembers me. Nobody cares. Nobody's looking. And then one day the king has a dream. And the king, the servant who was restored to the king, tells him, hey, I I'm sorry I forgot, but there's a man in prison I met. He interprets dreams. Joseph comes out, interprets the king's dreams, and now all of a sudden Joseph is the most second powerful man in all of Egypt. And because of him, a famine that would have destroyed the world, people were saved. Let me tell you, it's hard to find good when you're beaten and thrown into the bottom of a well. It's hard to find good when you've been sold into slavery. It's hard to find good when you're lied about. It's hard to find good sitting in prison. It's hard to find good when you've been forgotten. But I can tell you this. We know, we know that all things God works for the good. And let me tell you, because Joseph kept his integrity, Egypt was saved from a famine. Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, all of the nations around them came and they were fed. Literally, the world was saved because Joseph found good in the midst of difficult times. Not only was the world saved, but Israel was saved. And now, all of a sudden, his 11 brothers, they show up. And all of a sudden now, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Hey, I'm your brother that you tried to kill. And they're terrified. And they say, what's going to happen to us now? And I want you to listen to the words of Joseph to his brother. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. You were trying to do something evil to me. You were trying to break me. You were trying to destroy me. The world was against me. But all of that, God had something good in store. And listen to the good that God is doing. In order, this is Genesis 50, 20. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. In order to bring about, what is the good? The good that God is looking for is always that many people will be saved. 
Let me tell you, the greatest good this world has ever seen was revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ took our sorrow, he took our pain, he took our tears, he took our lack onto himself so that we could experience God's greatest gift and God's good. He took pain so that I could have life. And Jesus Christ is our example of what good really means. Good doesn't mean that my life's going to turn out sweet. Good doesn't mean that I'm going to live a life without pain and sorrow. Good doesn't mean that I'm going to be wealthy and have a big house. Good means that I can know that every circumstance of my life, God is working through that circumstance so that others can find life and hope in Jesus Christ. So the question just comes down to this. Whose good are you living for? Whose good are you living for? 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all people. 2,000 years later, the offering today is for Project 42. Project 42 represents the 42 percent of our world that has yet to be engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 42 percent of the unre of the people groups of our world who have yet to have an adequate witness of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years after Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. Go and make disciples of every ethnic group. 2,000 years later, 42% of the world is still waiting. 42%. Why? Because we as a church and the people of God have been living for our own good. I mean, I got the gospel. I got a house. I've got food. I've got a good life. Everything's okay. And while we live for our own good, people continue to die and suffer without hope without Christ, because we are not living for the good of others. About 25 years ago, I went up into a valley up in the high mountains in India, and I was preaching in this valley. Everything's going good. Passing out gospel literature, passing out Bibles. And then all of a sudden, I, I see rocks start flying. One whizzes by, and all of a sudden, fists start flying, shoes start flying, and... Uh, my team and I, there was about six of us, we take off running. Now, I know you, th I th you think, oh, in that situation, I'd be brave. I would just lay down my life for Jesus. I wouldn't be afraid. Some of you have never been afraid because you've never been in the right situation. <laughs> it's easy to not be afraid coming to church every Sunday morning. <laughs> but you wait till a big rock flies by your head. <laughs> you wait till somebody picks up a big stick and starts swinging it at you. <laughs> and we're running down the hill. And there's a bridge that separates. There's a river, the bridge that separates. We run across the bridge. And once we get across the bridge, we notice they stop. So we stop. And we start looking. And we're checking for, okay, who's bleeding? Is everybody okay? And we, we checked everybody out. There's some blood, but nothing too serious. Everybody's okay. There's about five of us. We're like, all right, good. We're, we're catching our breath. And then all of a sudden, you could see across the valley, they start running up into the uh, village. And they start bringing down these Bibles and literature we'd given out, and they make a fire, and they start burning it right there in front of us. 
they're ripping up Bibles and just throwing them in the river. And we're standing there, and it's just like heartbreaking. And as we're standing there, a little boy comes up to the edge of the river, and he looks at me, and he points his finger, and he's just, he's cursing me. I, I can't hear him and understand him because the river is rushing, and you just can't hear it well, but, man, you can just tell. He's giving me a tongue lash, and he's pointing at me. And then uh, he's got this uh, gospel literature in his hand, and he rips it up, and he throws it in the water. There was an elder of the village standing behind him, and uh, he was, like, very pleased with this act, and he pats him on the shoulders, and then he walks away, and now we're just having a staring contest. He's just looking at me across the river. And after a minute, he looks over his shoulder, and then he looks the other way, and then he opens up his jacket, and he had a little New Testament in his pocket, and he winks at me, and then he runs away. For over 20 years, it was like that. But we know, but we know all things. We know that all things, God works for the good. We know it. We know it. 20 years later, we got a Bible school now in this area. That valley is one of the few places up there that we don't have any churches. They've got about 20 villages there. We have not one church there. We have not one believer there. It's just hard to the gospel. Then one day in our Bible school, this young man shows up. It's the first day of Bible school, and I always sit with students first day of Bible school and, and hear their stories. And so I ask him, what's your name? He said, my name is Yabez. And I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from the Harkidun, which is that area. And I'm just blown away. I said, man, how did you come to know the Lord? How did this happen? He said, my wife, she came from another valley. My family arranged the marriage, and then there was sickness in my family, and my wife had heard about Jesus. And she said, maybe we should pray to Jesus. And so we prayed, and Jesus healed us. And so we decided, man, we got to know Jesus. So, so we started coming out, and we found somebody, and they told us, you have this place where we can learn Jesus. So he came to Bible school just hearing about Jesus and wants to know Jesus more. So that's how he started Bible school. So he went through Bible school, and we prayed for him for a year, and then he went back. He said, I want to go back because all of my people need to know Jesus. A year later, I mean, it's, it's a long ways from my house. It took us a year to get back. I finally get back to where he is, and he takes me up to the highest uh, peak in this valley, looking out over these 20 villages of the valley. I said, well, tell me what the Lord has done now. And he, and he looks over, and he said, well, you see that village there? And you see that village? He said, those are the only two villages now where we don't have a gathering of believers in the whole valley now. I can tell you all things. I know it. All things work for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. But as long as good is about you, you're going to miss it. You're going to question, God, why me? Why are you allowing this? Let me tell you, all things, you can know it. All things work for the good. You just got to decide whose good am I living for? Am I living for the good of my city? Am I living for the good of my nation? Am I living for the good of Afghanistan, for India, for Haiti? Am I living for the good of others or am I living for my own good? Just in April alone, we lost 20 pastors in India to COVID just in the month of April. 20 pastors. And I can tell you why they died. I know it. They died 
because they started getting phone calls of people who said, Pastor, I'm sick. I'm dying. Would you come pray for me? My mother's sick. Would you pray for me? And sometimes they say, hey, can, can, I, can I pray over the phone? And they say, no, Pastor, we need you. Please come. And they went, and they prayed, and many times God healed those they were praying for, but they themselves died because they weren't looking out for their own good. They were looking out for the good of others. And I can tell you because of that, in India today, in the middle of loss, the church is growing like never before. And people are coming to faith. And people are connecting with churches saying, man, we've, we've seen you guys. You guys are the real deal. We want to be a part of that. Because they decided to live for the good of others. I just want to close by reading this scripture. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, or we might say your own good. Not looking to your own interests, your own good, but each of you to the interests, to the good of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The grace of God that you have received is not something to be used to your own advantage. Yes, thank you, Lord, for saving me so I can go to heaven. That's, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not my good. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is our example. He humbled himself and said, Father, not my will, your will be done. Father, if it's possible, I, I'd rather not have to live without a house and without a car. I'd rather not lose my job. I, I would rather have my health. I would rather not die in Afghanistan. I would rather not suffer alongside people in Haiti. But Father... Not my will. Father, your will be done. Help me not to live for my own good. Help me to live for the good of others. That's the only way this world's going to be changed. When we die to ourselves, when we take up our cross, and we follow after Jesus. Would you stand with me? And just lift both your hands just as a sign of surrender. You're just saying, Lord, I give up. And I want to pray this prayer over you because I can promise you this. You cannot do this in your own strength. You cannot just wake up and say today, you know what? I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm just going to live for others. You can't do it on your own. You need the grace of God. The early church said the grace of God was so powerfully at work among them. We need the powerful work of the grace of God that would help us to take our eyes off ourselves and our situation to stop living for our own good, to start living for the good of others. And there is a paradox in this that when I live for the good of others, God pours out his goodness on my life. That is the paradox of faith. 
God's not trying to take away your joy. God's trying to give you joy, but you can't find it as long as you're looking to yourself. So, Father, I pray today for your grace to be powerfully manifested today. Lord Jesus, we recognize that in our nature, in our sin nature, Lord, we have thought about ourselves first. We have not been our brothers and our sisters' keeper. But, Lord, I pray for your grace to be so powerfully a work among us that we would be able to say today, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. I am the keeper of reading Pennsylvania. I am the keeper of America. I am the keeper of Afghanistan. I am the keeper of Haiti. I am responsible that the authority that you have, Lord, you said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now I'm giving that authority to you. That authority has been transferred to us to be the keeper of the world. It was our divine destiny, Lord, that all of your creation, we were to be the ones who watch over and shepherded that creation. And Lord, we take that responsibility back to ourselves today and we say, yes, Lord, I'm not just responsible for me. I'm not just responsible for my family. I'm responsible for the world around me. Lord, I pray as we begin to look for the good of others, this city would be transformed, that many would see and be touched, that it could be said one day, there is not one needy person in reading because the church lived out its divine destiny. That it could be said, there's not one needy person in Haiti. There's not one needy person in Afghanistan. That the world would be revolutionized because we allowed you to transform us. So Lord, we take that upon ourselves today and we say, yes, Lord. I am my brother's keeper. Give me the grace to live it out. And I pray this week, show us one person, one family. Show us someone to start with. Show us someone to start with. A friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, show us somewhere to start this week. Let it start with one and flow out to many in Jesus' name.